0: Oh yeah, one thing that might happen is my kids might run in screaming about like 10 to the hour, Um, so I'll just mute if that's going on.
1: I may get the same at any point as well.
0: Hopefully we don't both do that and just leave Woody talking on his own.
2: (laughs) That's what I do mostly anyways. (laughs) Okay, so
1: hello and welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. Today um, I'm joined by Matt Wynn. Hello. And... Woody's All. Uh, Woody's come to talk to us about Mob Programming. So, uh, Woody, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Oh, sure. So uh, I've been doing software development for many, many years, uh, over 30 years. And about 15 years ago, I started working for other people doing software development. And I've really enjoyed it. So this has sort of been my focus in life. Uh, and I'll say 15 years ago, I experienced uh, some excellent uh work with one company that was doing extreme programming. It was, I think, in 1999, and it really opened up my eyes to the ideas uh, of Agile and the future of work that I, I could envision. And I'm proud to say, or very happy to say, I've at least seen some of those things come come to life in, in our work world. So that's me.
1: So the topic we wanted to talk to you today about was mob programming. Um, and I think you've certainly been one of the first, if not and most vocal proponents of this new style of working. Could you perhaps explain to any of our listeners who haven't come across it before what mob programming
2: is? Sure. It's it's really an easy concept to understand. And that is essentially when we're doing work uh, of the sort that we do when we do software development, we're almost always either sitting alone uh, with a team nearby perhaps and or with a pair. We, a lot of people have heard of pair programming and mob programming essentially is working together with more than a pair on the same thing at the same time, in the same space, and at the same computer. So that means uh, we've kind of taken Agile uh, at its at its face to mean we're going to work well as a team, and that's what mob programming is. And we didn't invent this, and we didn't uh, even start out doing it th- uh, thinking we are going to work together today, and and we're going to call it something new that uh, that hasn't come along yet. It was just we noticed that working together was working well for us uh, at a particular point in time, and we started doing a lot of it. And that was about four years, four and a half years ago. Mm. So I guess that's probably it. So to maybe to put a little bit more of a finer point on it, there's always just one person at the computer, and everyone else – uh, is is essentially discussing and directing what is going to be done and put into the computer. And we call this a driver-navigator model that uh, I learned uh, many years ago from Llewellyn Falco. And I think he originated that concept. Once I learned that from him for pair programming, uh, I just I switched to doing it because the basic idea is, a lot of times in pair programming, we'll pass the computer uh, keyboard back and forth to each other. Someone will say, oh, I've got an idea, and they'll take the keyboard and t- start typing. When they get a little bit blocked, the other person might say, oh, I know what to do with that, and they'll take the keyboard and work forward on it. But with the driver-navigator model, when you have the idea, you you hand off the keyboard to the other person. So it's the idea, or what do we think we need to do next, is is the key that, that someone else will take the, com- the keyboard so that you can express your idea to them, which sort of promotes the concept that we're going to always be discussing what we're doing, so we have two minds on the same thing at the same time. So mob programming just extends that out to a whole team, so the team can be paying attention to the code, they can be paying attention to the design, they can be paying attention to the business problem that we're trying to solve, all as a team. And uh, it's got a lot of no- nuances to it, and it's not as straightforward as just uh, everybody sitting together, but that's the basic idea. Maybe the overall caption to this would be, we need to learn how to work well as a team. Let's work well together. So
0: why would I want to do this, Woody? I mean, what benefits have you seen it bring
2: to teams? That's an excellent question that I usually ask in my talks. I ask the audience when I'm, when I'm talking about this for them to to tell me why would we want to work this way. So initially, when people first see this, they're almost incredulous that it's just, uh, it can't actually work. But after I show it and explain why, you know, that that the team did this and how we got to it, uh, that I feel is enough of an introduction to allow other people to think about how could this possibly be useful. And one of the things that almost every comes up immediately is we're gonna have this full communication with each other, sharing of ideas. To a level of fullness that we don't usually get when we're programming. Uh, and that's true. Another thing is it's a fun and relaxing way to work if you do it, at least in the manner we do it. Because you're no longer under pressure to keep your focus on what you're doing all the time because there's five or six people keeping their focus on the work. So you, can, you keep each other at the right state of involvement. Another thing is, is that the quality of the work that we do it is extremely high. We found over the four years of working that it was rare for something to get into production that uh, that had a bug in it. And as a matter of fact, to take that even a big step further, uh, as far as I recollect, we only had maybe one or two bugs during that four-year period that got into production because we're delivering things in very small bits and everybody's mind is on it. So we have little chance of a problem coming in. Another thing that we noticed is that we had very little technical debt because it would be rare for us to go past the thing we're working on, uh, with leaving it in shape that isn't good for the future. So we're always refactoring and bringing things down to the minimum, uh, that it needs to be the simplest thing that it needs to be. All those are reasons we kept doing it. But the reason that we did this, I I would like to say is because the, the team decided to do this. It was up to the team to decide, is this good for them? And that's, I think, a much better reason than any of those other reasons. Those other reasons are are why we would decide to work this way, but it's rare to have an opportunity for the team to decide for itself the manner in, in which it'll work.
1: So could, could we dig into that a little bit? Um, when you first When you first started talking about mob programming, you said that you noticed that that this was a good way for your team to work, and that and now you just said that the team decided that this was how they wanted to work. So how did how did you get to notice that this was a good way for you to work? How how did you just like discover it? I guess
2: for this team. Yeah, that's that's how we like to think about it. We discovered this. Uh, basically, what happened was uh, I had been hired at this company, Hunter Industries, in San Marcos, California. They're a, a manufacturer of very high quality landscape irrigation products. And there's a lot of software that gets done in their company. And uh, we had this, uh, they had a team that wrote a custom software. They called it Custom Applications. And uh, basically, they wanted to become agile. They wanted to. to improve whatever it was that they were currently doing and they believed that agile was the way to go. And I'm kind of well known in Southern California as someone who at least, um, at least has an understanding of agile and I've had some good successes with it. And a lot of people turn to me for, for things about agile. So I took the job and I figured that, uh, I have four or five things that I'd like to do. And, and if you want, I'll, I'll share this with you because this is really, in my opinion, this is the story of what happened. Um, I invited everyone to participate in a weekly study session because I believe that studying together is important to do and even more than that, practicing together. It's like if we don't practice something together, we can't really ever get good at doing it together. And I kind of have the hidden agenda that many of the things in extreme programming are worth at least trying, including pair programming and including test-driven development. So uh, I introduced these things through doing uh, this weekly study session. At the same time, we decided to use as our model of study and practice together a coding dojo style where you would have four or five people, the whole team sitting in front of the, uh, a large monitor, one person at the keyboard, one person standing up as the designated navigator. So as this was just a study mechanism that had worked well for me because everybody kind of is paying attention. You use a rapid timer like every four minutes. You rotate so the driver moves out of the driver's seat and the uh, navigator sits down and the next person in the group stands up and they become the navigator. And we just keep rotating that way throughout the whole study session. So we were learning how to navigate. We were learning how to drive. We were learning how to be patient and wait our turn to be the navigator before we spoke. Uh, all of these things are good team skills to have, but we didn't know where this was heading, but basically what happened, uh, I like to introduce the idea of doing uh, lots of retrospectives as well. And I'll take that a step further. We need to get really good at getting good results from our retrospectives rather than getting good at having retrospectives because it, it has nothing to do with, uh, having the retrospectives, it's about what is the result. Uh, but a lot of teams I've seen uh, and I've uh, visited a lot of companies, they have retrospectives essentially to check off on their checkbox that they took care of uh, retrospectives that they decided to do. We need to take that further and make sure we're getting good results. And uh, there's a there's a theme in software development, uh, agile development, that, that if we compress the, the time of something that we're having trouble getting good at and, and do it more frequently – then both of those things will add to our ability to learn to do it. So we can do shorter retrospectives daily, and maybe that will help us get better at retrospectives. One more thing I'll add from Kent Beck, which I think is really important. So I was introducing these concepts. This last one is uh, the the idea from Kent Beck that he saw all the practices that he was using uh, and knew were good because he had experience with them. And that's really important to me. He didn't read it in a book, although he may have started there with some of these things. He didn't uh, say, this is really good because I saw a seminar about it or got trained on it. He said, I had experience with these and I knew they were good. I like that. And then he said, I pictured those as being the knobs on a mixing board. And I just wondered what it would be like if we just turned them all up. And of course, there's maybe some balance between them. And that's maybe part of what a mixing board gives us. But the idea that we could turn them up was the beginning. And I took that to mean, let's look at what's good, and let's turn that up. And I say, uh, in the shortest way I can say it is, let's turn up the good. So what ended up happening was, one day we had a big project we needed to look at that had been put on the back burner for various reasons, and, um, and it was time to work on it. It had a very short deadline, uh, much shorter than it had when I first arrived. It was about six months later. We had about a three-month deadline now. We met in a regular meeting room to have a, a discussion, and like a typical meeting, you look at the, something you needed to do, decide who would do what, uh, make some assignments, make some commitments, and everybody would leave, and then go do their work. But while we did it, somebody on the team saw some of the code saying, oh, look at that. There's a code smell in there. Well, this is one of the things the team had learned, and one of the things I was hoping that we would learn. They said, oh, there's a code smell in there. let has got a long method. And somebody else said, well, let's compose it. The person at the keyboard said, Well, I know how to do that, and handed the keyboard off to someone else and stood up and started navigating. Pretty soon, we had spent an hour and a half doing this. We used a timer, we started using the timer just as we did doing our coding dojo. That was the discovery moment. Because when somebody walked into the room uh, from some other part of the company because they had reserved the room, at a lot of companies, you know, you have a meeting room that you can only schedule for a short amount of time. We have 20 meeting rooms across the company. Somebody came in and said, we have this room reserved, and uh, somebody on the team said, let's go find another room. So we immediately found one on the schedule raced over there, and when we got there, somebody else said, let's just go ahead and schedule another room after this room is done. So by the end of the day, we had done this three sessions, and at the end of the day, we had our retrospective for the day. And uh, in that retrospective, we all said, let's just schedule rooms for all of tomorrow because let's keep working this way. Everybody saw the good. And since we had been learning to work together, it naturally gelled for us. And since we've been learning uh, to turn up the good and to have good retrospectives in, in micro-retrospectives, it just all kind of came together. And this is, to me, it's about having an environment where you can discover the good things to turn up, and you need to be paying attention to be able to do that. So if you get put all that together that was the discovery process. So this
0: leads me to a question about context about where is a where is a good environment to try this where is this likely to to be well received and succeed what other kind of ingredients that you need to already be seeing and and you just spoke about that a bit about i think you said a place where people are already learning about how to do good and they're already feeling free to try and do do more good um i mean i was specifically thinking about technical practices like you mentioned there that um people were already familiar with identifying code smells do you think this is a practice that people can really pick up and run with if they have not yet tried pair programming do you think that pair programming is sort of a foundation skill for this or is it something that actually would help you to learn the skills that you could then also take to pairing if that was
2: what you needed to do or or wanted to do yeah well i i I think you had three or four questions there so you'll have to remind me as we go (laughs) Uh, but just the first one is the the idea of what what would be a fertile ground to to try this and yeah. I think almost at, at any organization that somebody, if somebody gets the idea, hey, this seems interesting, um, you know, they might want to try it. But I don't think that, that you should go to your team and say, hey, I, I just heard uh, the craziest thing you, you'd ever hear about software development. Let's start doing it. You know, that's just not going to go over well at a lot of places. And as a matter of fact, I've seen uh, reports. I've gotten a lot of uh, people who have contact me saying they're trying this and telling me about the kinds of things that have happened to them when they said let's do this because it it doesn't you know it doesn't seem like it would work but that's how a lot of things are in life you know Uh, so first of all I think it can work almost anywhere but it also might not work almost anywhere so I I have no way to say Mm. you should try this or here is what you need to put in place before you can try it we were doing our model of this based on the, the coding dojo that, uh, that we had kind of got to us through the software craftsmanship group in Paris, I think is where the basic idea. I think when Llewellyn heard it, uh, Llewellyn Falco had heard it at a conference and the experience there, he brought it to me, and then we morphed it into this idea of the driver navigator thing. So the idea that we're going to sit as a group and we're going to do it th- this way is just something that all came together. So I would say this is kind of the, the reverse of what happened to us because anybody hearing me talk, uh, has now heard about it. So it changes the, um, yeah, it changes. The kinds of, the know. kind
0: of people that you're even talking to about it are, are going to be self-selecting. Yeah. Cause I, I've encountered, I mean, I've, I've, um, been to lots of coding dojos and it's something I really enjoy. It's like turning our craft of programming into a, into a real game, like a sport almost. And I, I love it. I have real fun yes. with it. Um, and anytime there's an ch- opportunity to join one at a conference, I'm always really keen to do it. And then some places where I've been and done coaching with a team who, um, were, you know, hadn't tried any of the XP practices, I, w- I have had experience trying to do that style of coding dojo with them, and it's really amazed me how there's something about the dynamic of the group that really kind of takes them down the path of success or failure with that so if they're comfortable making mistakes in front of one another um, if sorry or the other way around if they're uncomfortable making mistakes in another they're sort of afraid of each other almost um yes th- th- it's very very difficult for that that stuff to work isn't it and I think that maybe that's part of it so it's a, sort of the group dynamic
2: that matters really whether people are enjoying each other. You're pointing out something that's just human nature, and uh, you're talking about vulnerability. Right. And, and a lot of people would have trouble showing their, their uh, skills where they're lacking uh, to someone else. So I, I, I like to share this story. Uh, when I was a kid, I worked for about a year with a violin maker, uh, as sort of as an apprentice. And he, I would do work for him, and then he would help me learn how to do some of the things in making a violin. And so, uh, the fiddle scroll at the, you know, the top of the neck of the violin where the pegs for tuning are, uh, is a difficult, uh, kind of a nice decorative part of a violin, but difficult to do. So apprentices practice on that for years to get good at it. So he taught me how to do it and showed me some skills. And then he gave me a piece of wood uh, to work on making a fiddle scroll and a uh, fiddle head. And he, 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 guided me through it, marking it, doing the work, but he'd give me a piece of wood that was very difficult to carve. And he did that on purpose, but I didn't know it at the time. I just slaved away at the thing. And every time I made a mistake, he would say, oh yeah, yeah, I've made that mistake before. Let me show you how to fix that. And I would, he would show me how to fix it. So after I worked on this thing for two or three months, you know, whenever I had a chance to work on it, it was done and it was presentable. And he said, uh, do you know, the difference between a master violin maker and and all the other violin makers. I said, no, I don't. And he said, the master violin maker knows how to hide his mistakes. (laughs) And once that sunk into me, he had purposefully set me up to fail so I could learn how to hide my mistakes because he knew that in making a violin, you are going to make mistakes. And uh, so whether that's really true or not, that was part of his philosophy and, and that's part of what this is, is we have that in us that we want to hide our mistakes. But as the apprentice, the job of the master was to make sure I made all the mistakes so that I could learn how to deal with them. It was really a good lesson for a young guy to have. Uh, but, but I don't say it's a good idea to set others up to fail. That's not quite a good concept. <laughs> but if we take this to the team now, we have to realize yeah. that we are all beginners, in yeah. something that we're doing. Yeah. And we are even the best of us have to get used to the idea of showing their vulnerability so others are comfortable working with us. And so I will place myself in front of the team because I know all my mistakes. I don't have to do it on purpose, they just happen. And then they get to see that, oh, he gets to make mistakes, that means I get to make mistakes. So that solves a little bit of that. But I, I don't have any good answer to it. I, I have worked with people who will not work with others. Uh, and I don't know what the re- the reasoning they might have is.
0: I think that already was a great answer. It's a great insight for me, that idea of people being comfortable making mistakes in front of one another. I remember a friend of mine describing about the first time he ever tried pairing, how he was terrified. So he went to work at a place where ThoughtWorks were in and he wasn't working for ThoughtWorks, he was a contractor. And he thought he was going to get fired because they were rolling out XP across the whole program and he didn't know about XP and he was going to have to start doing pairing. And he 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 had an epiphany, like he he was delighted by it. like. Um, but when he first had to do pairing the first day, he, he was just so scared because he thought um, that he was the only programmer. And this is a really brilliant guy, by the way. Um, he thought he was the only programmer who had to, you know, go and look up on Google when he couldn't figure out how to do something. And he was terrified that somebody else oh. was going to find that out. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that what programming is? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> it's 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 a bit like the, um, <sighs> the advice of asking be the one to ask stupid questions, isn't it? Like when you're talking to people yeah, about yeah. something new and um you a question pops into your head about what they're talking about. Don't be afraid to ask that question because there's probably someone else in the room that wants to ask the question too. And it's the same thing but about programming.
2: Yeah, you free everybody else. Yeah, that's a real good point. You 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 can be the model by which others can accept mm. themselves better. You know, one, one thing that I've done, so I, I've worked, uh, I've, I've done a lot of consulting or, or coaching over the last while. And uh, one thing that I'll often do is uh, if we're standing at the board and everybody's picking the work that they're going to work on for the day, I, I'll pick a card off and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to work on this, but uh, I don't have a clue what this is. So can somebody help me? <laughs> And then when you sit down with them, they're automatically pair programming. And, uh, and now we're, I'm exposing. I don't know what this thing is. As a matter of fact, I, when I go around and, and I'm at different companies, they're working in languages I've never had a chance to work with. I was at a place the other day. Uh, I've fiddled around a little bit with Python, but uh, that's what they use, one of their fundamental languages. I, I really don't have much experience with it. You know, Everything I do is going to need to be directed, and, and that allows everyone to get that comfort feeling that, you know, uh, this guy who's coming here isn't here to, to show us how good he is. This guy is here to help us, you know, learn. Uh, and, and I guess maybe I should put a point on that. I can't really teach anybody anything, but I, I think I can help people move past uh, the problems they're having in, in having a learning environment. There's mm-hmm. one way I like to look at it is this. If we have an environment where everyone can excel Everyone will. If we don't put that environment in place or find a way to have that environment, then we start getting these dysfunctions where we're afraid to let others see that that we're frail, that we can't, that we don't know everything. And so, it's good in a team to have a couple very advanced people who are happy to let it be seen that they're not. that they're not know-it-alls. That there's areas that they can't do well, and even in the good work that they do, there's going to be mistakes that they don't mind having shown to them. Because once we discover a problem, then we can learn how to solve it as a team, and uh, that frees up the rest of the team to say, yeah, I'm, I'm a little more comfortable working in front of somebody." But there's no quick answer. I mean, to say there's no in one step, everybody's good at being exposed. <laughs> you know, we, we have to be careful.
1: When you're describing um, how you started with mob programming, um, you talked about the coming from the Randori dojo style of a driver and a navigator um, and then rotating through those roles as well. Um, but you also talked about later on, it's kind of everybody else is a navigator and there's a driver and people are discussing. How did how did that kind of evolve?
2: So when when you do this as a study session, you have to have some sort of an order that also requires that everybody be prepared to uh, talk about the work we're doing when it comes their turn to be the navigator. Because otherwise, the people who aren't uh, ready to be talking, they'll just defer to someone else. This sort of requires that we learn beyond the code stuff we're learning, we're also learning how to express our ideas, and that's part of why we do it, work this way. So when you do it as a a training exercise – it's good to have that that model of a little bit more of a constraint. As a matter of fact, I use this in my workshops. This is the, I use three models of working this way. And the first one I start with is that because there's an important lesson we have to learn, and that is to uh, to keep from speaking. So often we think that, oh wait, I know what to do, and we feel that's the time to bring it up. But sometimes uh, it's better to just wait and let the others come up with their ideas. When it's your turn to navigate, if you feel you can refactor to the idea you have, you just need to re- you need to state your intention clearly. And hopefully the whole team gets the idea and then we can move forward with this refactoring. But if we if we didn't wait till it was our turn, we may not see the fullness of the other people's idea and we may need to see that before We say, our right, we think our idea is better. There's one rule when I work this way is you can't delete code. You can't go in and say, I don't like what everybody's done. Delete it all. Let's start over. You have to refactor to the the solution. So the thing is, is, let's take this to the workplace now. Well, we don't want that constraint in the workplace. We want all ideas to flow. But we need to have the feeling of what it's like to not talk when we desperately want to talk so if we uh, if we can recognize that inside ourselves then we are paying attention to ourselves and we are allowing the focus to be on someone else that's just as important in working together as it is to get the good ideas together we have to have a model to follow to do that and i think this is it or i should say this is one that's what we used so when we're working together it's a very different thing we we now have four or five people who can be talking about the idea but we want to keep it where it's one person talking at a time, and an agreement is made about, okay, yeah, let's do that next, whatever it is. So the ideas get expressed, we go forward, and then we can turn that into code. And that means we're not always writing code. Code is just, uh, code is the translating of our good ideas into something a computer can handle. Uh, Computers just don't understand very much. Uh, They basically have a very limited vocabulary, and we have to Take our big ideas and constrain them down to what a computer can understand, um, and that's that's a trick too. But that's that's not really what programming is. That's the coding part of programming. We have to turn it into a code that the computer can understand. The real programming is the thinking. Yeah,
0: and they're trying to turn the trying to turn the vague ideas into into something concrete enough that you can actually explain it to a computer. That's the the
2: thing I find interesting about it. Sometimes that requires coding. That's, co- coding is an important part of this process. But if we, as a team, somebody I can, I can kind of enact it a little bit here. Somebody might say, uh, you know what we need to do is uh, this story is about uh, put, sending out uh, late, in, late warnings on, on somebody's uh, payments. Maybe they, they haven't paid an invoice. And so this is going to go through uh, everything and find late payments so we can send an invoice out. There's the top-level story. Then somebody might say, "Well, we're going to need to get a customer object, a collection of their invoices, loop through them, uh, find a late payment, and then make a, a notice, and then we'll it'll get emailed to them." Well, there's a there's a little bit, you know, we're getting moving close to what we're going to do. If there's a driver, the person at the keyboard knows how to new up a uh, customer object and knows how to get a collection of their invoices, they can just start coding that. We don't need to go any deeper on the level of. The idea, then somebody can start translating into code. And in a minute or two, we'll then see, oh, wait, but we need to do this too. You know, so it's in the doing of the work that we discover the work we need to do. So as as that comes forward, we will start saying, oh, we need to go here first, and we need to get permissions for this database. So how do we get that, you know, and things like that. So those are just a few simple examples, but you can see that the discussion is getting us to what is the work how does that fit into our design what does our architecture do with these kinds of things and and so on and at some point maybe it's going to appear to somebody who's working with it on a screen as a list or whatever and then they can select you know send emails or whatever it is you want to do so this
0: this this reminds me of of a Uh, an issue that we came to a few times when we were mobbing. And I think maybe this is partly because of the context of having a very, very young code base. So we literally did mobbing from the first acceptance test onwards. So we were building out our architecture as we went, and we would hit points where we weren't sure what was going to be the right code to write. And we were essentially the mob was stuck because we wanted to try different options, and an approach we took at that point was to stop the mob and split into pairs who would go off and investigate the different ideas that we had as spikes so for people that don't know the terminology that's like throw away piece of code Um, and then we come back together and we'd usually just time box it to an hour um We'd come back together and have a little show and tell and compare what we'd been doing and sometimes you know that this was this had been the cause of an argument we hadn't really been able to figure out what was right people had opinions opinion in the abstract we didn't have real code to talk about so um invariably you found at the end of the divergence we'd come back together with real concrete stuff to talk about and we'd be able to find a great probably not just a compromise but something that was a sort of a mesh of the two ideas um I just wondered if you'd seen similar problems and if you had other kind of approaches that you'd seen or what, what happens when the mob doesn't know what to do next in your, in your
2: experience? So you, you're bringing up a very, uh, this is a very common thing in software development. There's, uh, my dad used to say, and he was an engineer, he wasn't a programmer, uh, but he was an engineer, and, and he, he would say, you know, there's a thousand right ways to do anything. So uh, do, can we tell the future as to the thing we think is right today? Will it be right tomorrow? Will it be right six months from now in code when we look back and say, oh, geez, I wish we hadn't have done this. Look at what we got ourselves into. I think because code is actually malleable, uh, w- as long as we follow some halfway decent rules of, of emergence and keeping things decoupled, it's not a very big problem as compared to how it could be in the physical world uh, where we're doing hardware and things like that. What it comes down to for me is this, the model that you, the the practice that you just said, where when we come to one of these and we can't really come to a decision, we can split off in pairs. That's totally viable. Uh, You can do this parallel work and then compare. And once you get to the comparing part, we probably go, oh, you know what? I like what you did there and let's do this other thing with it. And now we have an even better thing. Because again, it's in the doing of the work that we discover the things that we're going to discover. So that could be done as pairs, but that can also be done as the team. Everyone could split off as well into solo work. So there would be at least, I mean, those are the only three options I could think of. I guess the other <laughs> option is to, to, call, to call in a strike team or something who would come in and, and help you out. You know. So I guess there aren't too many other options. When, well, where you where could, I suppose now. the
0: other options, you could pursue each of the options in series as a mob, right? But I think the, the sense
2: is that that would be wasteful. Yeah, so I think we really, so we probably need a whole session on what, is, what does it mean to be wasteful? Um, because when you split apart, uh, and work separately, there's another kind of waste that happens is that the learnings that Mm. are occurring are learning Mm. separate. These, these are separate things. And when you come back together, why you went down the paths you went now have to be explained Mm. and explaining isn't necessarily the best way to convey information like this in this podcast, all people are getting to do is hear some words. And putting that all together, you know, can you listen to something for the entire length of this podcast and have paid enough attention during the whole time to actually get, you know, maybe you heard every third word. I don't know. So this is kind of the problem with this. We're very, very visual creatures. And uh, it's in activities that we learn things sometimes the best that takes everything together. It's like when you're working as a mob you have a different learning experience than when you're working as pairs. Mm. When you split off into pairs, we have to at least have some ability for the two people on the pair to work together. When you're working as a mob, not everybody has to work well with everybody else. They Mm. just need to be able to work well with a group, which is a different thing than working well individually with each person because there's always someone there to maybe smooth things over. So I, I think that's a, what you expressed was a good way to go. We're going to work in parallel for a little while and see what happens. And that's something that, uh, that our team often would do uh, on some things. For example, we'd come to a part and say, oh, we need three of these and we need three of those. Uh, let's just all split up and do one each, something like that. You know, So there's, there's no reason you have to keep it all together, but it's just uh, it's another way to do it. I would state, though, that we don't need to do th- these things to their fullness to make decisions. So is, uh, one, one approach is to say, which one of these do we think is least likely to be useful? And, uh, and try that one first, yeah. just so we get the learning out of it, because otherwise we're not going to get the learning out of it. Okay, that's a big thing I see a lot of times when we're trying to be effective in our work. We don't do some of the things that would have given us uh, the better learning, and we don't know that, we didn't, that that didn't happen. We don't know that that thing would have taught us something. Uh, one of the guys on the team uh, came up with the idea of let's pick the least experienced person's idea and do that one first. If we find it works, then we all learned what works. And if we find it didn't work, then we learn why we don't want to use that approach. But, but that gives us a chance to try the things. Uh, maybe I could say it this way. If Somebody at my age, and uh, since I guess this is a, just an a uh, audio uh, podcast, won't realize that um, I'm not just a kid anymore but when you get to my age you got solutions that you use over and over that you've used many times and they don't always fit the need but because you know how to do them you do them and the the younger person perhaps hasn't built that backlog of solutions when i do workshops on this stuff i notice that the experienced programmers come up with solutions that are very much programming oriented and the more beginner programmers come up with ideas that are more problem space Mm. uh, focused it's a weird thing the programmers go to things like oh we need a map and we're going to need to do this thing and we're going to have this inheritance and the other person's saying yeah what we need to do is get a way to find in this word a matching part or whatever it is so they're talking in a much more problem space that's a better place to be talking that sort of programming isn't that here's the mechanisms we get to use in programming it's here's the solution here's the problem space how do we drive this to a solution those are different mindsets it's good to have them both on the team so i maybe i could express another observation about this that might be useful that often we would get to the point where the team so we have a heuristic of how to stay engaged with the team if you feel you're learning something or you feel you're contributing, then it's a good time to stay with the team. But if you feel you're not learning or contributing, you use the law of two feet that comes from open space world, you would say, well, I'm going um, to go work by myself for a while. And then you'll, you'll feel productive there until you feel you want to get back with the team. But what we've noticed is when we split up, we're often beginning to, to ask the person who just left some question. So it may take a few minutes, but they'll you know as long as they're nearby, that's not a problem. You just go over to you know, where they're sitting nearby and say, hey, we have this question about what we're working on, and we'd like you to come and, and look at it with us for a second. But this is part of why I think mob programming is so effective, because in our normal workday, let's just say we have a team of five working separately, and there's going to be a team lead uh, often on a team, and that's the person that everyone else turns to for questions. Now, sometimes they can turn to each other. But they turn them to to ask them a question so they can get an answer and continue working. But that means that person's getting interrupted all the time. So are they able to apply their higher level skills as a lead? When somebody comes to a question with them, they have to get into the context space of that question. uh, Go look at the code maybe. Talk to them about the problem they're trying to solve. And is the advice they're going to give very good? It may not be because getting that full context is not easy to do. So when we're working as a team, the lead is there the whole time and everyone is getting the advantage of having the insights when they're appropriate from that person. I like to share it this way. We all have to be prepared to contribute the right thing at the right time and in the right way. And that means that the, the lead person is looking for a date where they can be, where their contribution brings the most value. And sometimes It's better for them not to answer something when they sense someone else is right on the edge of understanding that thing. Give them the space to come to it without you directing them. That makes, in a lot of ways, that helps that person become better. It helps them better understand the current problem, and you're giving them the chance to get to it themselves, which if you give it to them, the learning opportunity might not actually happen. They just got the solution, and on we go. So that everybody on the team has to be prepared with this thinking. That uh, I don't need to contribute all the time, but when it is time to contribute, I'm in the full same thought area or context as the rest of the team. It's a much more meaningful kind of communication. Who,
1: who has the idea isn't important. It's just who, that the team has the idea.
2: Yeah, the idea will form in the team and therefore in, as an individual, my idea will grow quickly when it's expressed because the other contributions will make it much better. I've seen this over and over for myself. If I share my faint idea, it becomes a strong idea with those additions from the rest of the team, Mm. or it's allowed to fade away if it doesn't quite fit what we're trying to do. But if I'm expressing my ideas every minute of the day, then that would not be good.
0: Yeah. It's definitely one of the things that came up in, in our our retrospectives about mobbing was um learning to shut up yeah that's so difficult <laughs> i'm gonna try it right now <laughs> no you're here to speak that was that that was the thing though yeah just just learning to moderate your own input so that you are it's so easy to jump in and try and be helpful i think especially actually the rule that you take from the coding dojo of um staying positive and constructive on red. So when the tests are failing, just even if you disagree with the, the maybe the, the design or the sort of direction of travel, um, or no, the, not the direction of travel, but the, the way the problem's being solved, just trying to help the driver to get to a passing test and then talking about how else you would like to see the solution implemented rather than effectively heckling on red, that's something that we learned. It's really important. It's just completely from the coding dojo rules.
1: Especially when there's five or six people, and for us, it's <laughs> it's it's remote. So it's five or six people in your headphones. As a driver, that is a right. really difficult thing to deal with. Oh, <laughs> all, it's, all of them saying
0: no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're doing it three kinds of wrong. Yeah. When when is it time to stop? mobbing i mean in in a day-to-day way do you you see teams kind of naturally just running out of energy in a day and drifting off to do other things or um does it depend on the day some days they like do it till 5 p.m and they wish they could stay longer and some days it's shorter or how do, how does that how do you see that working
2: So I've worked in in software development for other people for about 15 years. The 15 years I was just doing it for myself and within my own company where I needed the software I was writing, I would sometimes work all night on it because it was just so compelling and fun. But I also noticed the next day I wasn't as quite as effective as I was the day before. And so uh, there is a saying as well uh, that I've heard lately that I really like, and that's at uh, at 5 o'clock, that's when we start writing tomorrow's bugs. So... (laughs) We, ha- we have to find a time that we're going to say it's time for us to do the other things in our life that we have, mm. uh, you know, and that we could go home and then just work on, let's say, uh, some games we're programming or other programming things. But so that's the first focus I have when I came to work at Hunter. And I've kind of used this model for a long time now is we don't work over time. When you're working as an individual, we often have this feeling of, look, I just want to finish this part, and I can give good examples of that. I'd be working at home, and my wife would come to me and say, "Um, it's time for dinner, and then I'll say, okay, I'll be right there, and then in a few minutes, seemingly, she'll come in and say, it's time to go to bed. And I'll say, okay, I'll be right there. And then in a few moments, the scene I've never done that. I've no, I've no idea what you're talking about here. It's never in say, happened to me. It's time to go to work. <laughs> and so it's like I've been sitting there for eight hours or 12 hours, uh, essentially not moving from the space I'm sitting at, focused on the keyboard. And I probably don't even remember that I said, I'll be right there to dinner. So this is a problem that we, we might need to deal with. The end result is when you're working with a team, the flow is a different flow than when you're working as a solo person. When I work alone in programming, I have to have in mind every bit of what I'm doing. I have to be thinking about the problem space, the domain of the problem, the architecture we're working within the design of the modules that we're working on, how code works, all these things are. I'm switching in my brain back and forth. That's why we need to focus, at least I think, this sort of a theory I have, that that's why we need to get so zoned in and so focused to get into that state of flow. When you're working as a team, it's spread across the team. If we leave, if we stop at any one moment, like let's just say the boss comes in and says, oh, we, we got to have a a department-wide meeting, everybody come over here uh, because we want to you know, announce that we're somebody new is coming on or whatever it is. We all go over there, and then we come back. Well, if we're working individually, it, we've been disrupted from our flow. But with the team, when we sit back down, somebody's going to get right into it, and everybody else will be drawn right along with it. Somebody remembers uh, out of the team, the group memory gets us back where we belong. So if we leave at 5 and we come in the next morning at 8, we are right on top of our work. We all know where we were. And, of course, because we're writing yeah. tests all the time, we, we can tell from our tests. And, and, we, and because we're working in small chunks, it's very rare that we have something that extends over two days. We, we get stuff done quickly this way. Things go into production daily in, in the model we were using. We tried to get something into production on any project we were working on every single day. So that means sometimes we are going to production four or five times a day.
0: Yeah, we we added a, a constraint ourselves to just work from eight thirty till twelve and stop at twelve. And some days it drifts well, on noon. for another like fifteen twenty minutes. Yeah, noon. Some days it drifts on for another sort of fifteen twenty minutes. We we try and stop at quarter two and have a retrospective, just make some notes. We've got one file in the repository where we just make notes every day, just a kind of big long log, and. Some days it drifts over a bit, but it's been, I think Steve wrote a blog post about it. It's really healthy, I think we found, to have that constraint that there is space outside of the mob to do
2: whatever. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, When you're working together, uh, not everybody's rhythm is exactly the same. If I feel I need to go uh, get up and take a little walk, that's all right. Because everybody else will just continue moving forward. And when you gather back together, uh, you will quickly recognize the progress that was made. If they finish the story that you were on or the bit of work you were on, they start on something else. You get up to speed on that really quickly. It's a much more uh, open way of uh, working than when you're working with a pair where if somebody takes a break, you're no longer pairing. When somebody takes a break when there's four or five of you, you still are mobbing. You're still working as a group. In fact, uh, those are the kinds of things I would say it's good to practice. So every now and then you might just say to yourself, well, I'm going I'm to leave for a few minutes and come back and see if I do get back on track really quickly. Because I think beginners often see, if I leave for a minute, I'm going to miss something important, and they're going to feel like they're, they're not. So they're going to be a little bit too, uh, they're going to be a little too focused on paying attention. It's not about paying attention to that degree. It's being about paying attention generally to what's going on. We don't need the same level of focus on everything that we need when we're working alone. I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but it's just an observation I've had. It's worth experimenting with those kinds of things.
1: So uh, we've talked a lot about the kind of mechanics of coding in a mob, um, and we've touched a little bit on design. But one of the things you said at the start was there's always someone who's got their eye on the code and the design, but also the business problem. And um, how important is it to have someone who owns that business problem
2: involved in the mob? Well, I would say it's critical. So I would want to see as part of the team is the business expert. So in the, as we were working at Hunter, we didn't have a dedicated uh, uh, product owner who could spend the whole day with us. So we, tr- we did our best to have them involved as much as possible. So they would come to be with us every day for an hour or two. And during that time, we would do as best we could to demonstrate the work that we just did that we're now putting to production and then talk about the thing that, that uh, we're going to work on next. So that means it wasn't based on time. It was based on the event of us being ready to take on the next chunk of work. And then they, they uh, through a process that we probably don't have time to cover, we discovered that if they were open to answering questions at any time during the day, uh, either over the phone or Skyping or whatever, or they would just walk over to our area because we have a they have a campus there where there's buildings in different areas. Uh, if they were close enough, they could just walk over. They would, so that the ability to get a question answered quickly is really important in the flow of getting software work done. What I've seen, uh, one of the ways they're working with it at Hunter, I was there doing some consulting in the last few months, is they do have some embedded product experts who are just totally the expert in the world about what needs to be done on this particular project and they spend a lot of the time with the team They're, they actually have a setup where they are sitting with the team uh, available to answer questions at any time but their setup is there that allows them to do other things they might need to do but I think if the work is important it's important to get those questions answered immediately there's there's so many nuances to it but I think it's critical this is an idea of a whole team it's cute uh, tester, it's not separate from the team. A database expert or uh, somebody who's you know, is the, sort of the, the build expert, that's not somebody separate from the team. Th- these are people who are on the team. And if we're pushing stuff uh, to production daily, then we all have activities during the whole day that we need to be doing together.
1: So if people want to give mob programming a try, I see through Twitter that you are running um, all over um, lots of free mob programming workshops. Could you tell us a little bit about those yes. workshops, what people can expect if they came along to one?
2: So I try to introduce all these topics, and I really appreciate having a little space to talk about this here. Um, what I like to see for myself, I think that a two- or three-day workshop is, is ideal, but all the ones that I've been doing have been one day because that's, that's what a lot of people have time to do. The reason that these workshops are free that I'm doing is I, I generally I find a, a somebody, a sponsor, who will bring me into an area and get me enough work to, to make it worthwhile. And then somebody has to arrange for a place to do it. But I can't really handle more than maybe 20 people in a workshop, so it's not usually too hard to find that. What happens in the workshop is that we're going to first learn a little bit about the nature of software development and why it's so difficult. And then let's learn a little bit about what it means to work as a team and how, uh, how much better it can be when we get good at working together as a team. Not everything works well as a team, you know, but in software development it can, and we want to understand how that might be, what what are the possible advantages. Then we get into coding, and we actually we demonstrate the basic idea of the coding dojo, as I explained earlier, and we get some experience with that, and then we go on to a more extended project that's still just a, a kata but we go into this more advanced project and spend the rest of the day practicing not talking practicing only talking when it's right for us to talk at first everybody has trouble with the not talking part but it's really hard also to navigate well so we want a little practice with that so that's basically what's going on. this is out of it's not out of the goodness of my heart that I'm doing it because you know I still got to make a living somehow but on the other hand I think it's important that people who are interested in this have a chance to 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 do it And in some cases I'm at a conference, they'll, they'll make it as part of the conference and they'll, you know, they'll charge a regular conference tutorial fee or whatever. But if I'm in a town where there's no conference and uh, someone can help put it together, just let me know. I'd be, I'd love to do it. I'm trying to put something together for three or four uh, areas in the U S right now, which would include, if you don't mind me saying can I, can I advertise it? I want to see if I can get to Dallas area. There's some people there that have been interested uh, Philadelphia, um, also uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, some people contact me from the uh, Chicago area. So I can only do so much. I just spent a week in Boston. It was fantastic. We had the public workshop. We had four or five private workshops. I got to speak at uh, Twitter. And then the next day I saw uh, people tweeting from Twitter Boston saying that they worked all day as a mob. And that's really heartwarming to me because it's, it's not important that people – uh, accept these ideas, but I love to hear that they that they try them and, and see what it is for them. We have a mob programming conference coming up in Boston, May 1st and 2nd. Uh, we're having people coming from all over the world who are going to act as mentors for anybody who wants to learn these things. It's going to be experiential, almost totally hands-on. We'll form uh, teams and people work uh, and flow from team to team as they want for the entire conference. Uh, in May, uh, I'll be at Agile Manchester. That's uh, the 11th through the 13th of May, and on later to the uh, to Edinburgh for the uh, XP 2016. I think some of you will probably be at XP 2016. Yes. Yeah. is that right? And I'm open in the weeks between to get some engagements because I I think I should just stay in England during that time or in that part of the world at least. So. Uh, there it is. I'm plugging, uh, begging, uh, begging for work as I as an itinerant uh, mob programmer. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Um, I'd encourage everybody to
1: get in touch with you who thinks you you could come along and help because if we can keep you in the UK between those two weeks, there's much more chance of uh, everybody getting a chance to have a go. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Woody. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Excellent. And thank you. I'm looking forward to catching up with you. Uh, when you're in the uk and we can talk more about what we've been doing as well then so um for everybody listening uh you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes and stitcher um and we'd love it if you could share this episode on twitter and and soundcloud and soundcloud
0: yep that producer theo is nodding cool
1: well thank you very much and
0: goodbye everybody thanks woody thank you